Hello again and welcome to the Master's Voice. I'm Celestial and you are welcome to this channel. To old and new subscribers alike, you are very welcome. Today's video is going to be slightly different, or at least the first of today's video. I'm hoping to make two today. So this is going to be sort of a helpful look to show you, first of all, what God has to say about the question of national repentance. This is something that the Lord showed me last week, but it keeps coming back in the form of a sentence. And I'm going to share today what God has laid on my heart concerning the issue of national, um, national repentance, how important it is, and how to be able to tell if wherever you live, your nation actually qualifies for having the signs that signal that a nation is repentant and is therefore qualified to seek mercy from God instead of wrath judgment or justice. The second thing is that I'm hopeful that this would be an indication of people who want to study the word of God, how you can do it. So hopefully, um, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, this video will be able to accomplish two in one and be a blessing to all who are seeking to understand, how do I read my Bible? How do I really understand what the Bible is telling me? How do I not superimpose what I think or what I've been hearing out there on the airwaves or even what I've always traditionally been taught in my Bible study, in the church that I grew up in, or even what I, as a leader, as a small group leader or a pastor, even what I tend to do when I study. And then I take that out. Out and I go and teach it to my congregation and perhaps it's not getting the kind of fruit that I want. So the text I'm going to be looking at today is 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and we're going to hone in and focus on this famous verse that everybody loves to use. It is everybody's shield and buckler if my people who are called by my name. So the video title for today is if my people the work of national repentance. And I'm sharing this word today. I think it's April 29th, 2022. And so let us begin with context. So I'm going to be looking at from verse 11 to Chronicles chapter seven, from verse 11 to verse 14, and perhaps maybe 15. So let's start with verse 11. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Now let's focus on these two verses, 13 and 14. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So this is a particular piece of scripture that is looking at the finishing of a work that has taken 
more than 10 or 12 years to complete. I'm not going to give the exact amount of years, but I know that it took more than a decade for Solomon to finish the house of dedication, the house of prayer, the house of seeking God. In other words, this grandiose gift to the God of Israel. David had said years before, who am I to be dwelling here in Jerusalem in the king's house? God has raised me up, a nobody from the stables. I was looking after the sheep in the sheepfold. And yet God came to my house and anointed me king above my brothers and has brought me here to the house of kings. But who am I to dwell in so much lavish splendor and wealth while my God is out there sleeping in tents? Now, David is basically talking about the ancient practice of carrying the presence of God personified by the ark and keeping it in the original tabernacle of Moses. And so David is demonstrated in the Bible as a person who understands that even when God raises us up to opulence, even when God raises us up to so much grace and favor and takes away the pains and the aches of life and now puts us in position of power, a position of wealth, a position of influence, a position where all the normal pains of life fall away, you will be able to tell the true God-minded people because even in the midst of wealth, even in the midst where God has fought their enemies and taken away all the stress and given them very high rulership positions, these people still have a heart for the God of covenant and they want to see that God lifted up and made an object of worship, made the center of worship by all people. And so David has this desire to build the temple for God. It's David's brainchild. It's not Solomon's brainchild. It's David's heart's desire that if David is going to live in the palace, then his God must live in something that is draped with what mankind finds precious, which is precious stone and um, acacia wood and 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 cedar wood and gold and silver. And so David has this lavish desire, but as we know, because David has been instrumentally used by God to slay the enemies of Israel, God says that David, you are a man of wars and your hand is also stained with blood. Speaking of the death of Uriah. And so David, you will not build this house for me, but your son Solomon is who I have chosen to rule after you. And this son of yours is the one who will raise up this design, this blueprint of love that you have in your heart. And so David is content. And in David's lifestyle, in David's lifetime, he commissions a ton of raw materials from the people, the elders, the wealthy, even the poor, all of them join together to bring together incredible resources. And now they build up what the Bible is calling the Lord's house, a house of prayer. What God comes and says to Solomon in verse 12, I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So, okay. God says that he's signing on with the use of this temple. And this will be the place where God is going to honor covenant with the Israelites. So he says to Solomon, 
I've heard because the day before they dedicated the temple in the same chapter seven, they dedicated this temple with thousands of bulls and thousands of sheep and sacrificing and much singing and rejoicing. And this is how people always are at the virginity part of their journey with God. When you start this journey with God, it's all about songs and laughter and dance and the freedom that naturally comes when God gives you this promise that you are free from the captivity of sin and that you are now part of God's family and will be walking with God in the expression of the renewed life that God himself is going to give you. But now let's do a deep dive into the verse. This is how you read and study your Bible. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or when I command the locusts to devour the land, or when I send pestilence among my people, I'm looking at verse 13. Now, if you notice, because the sentence is long, I'm using the phrase, when I, and then I'm using it in front of the different pieces of things that God says he will do. So when someone says when to you, automatically that person is communicating to you that this is not a maybe. When someone says when, they're speaking of something that is fact. Just a moment, please. Whenever you hear the word when, you're not asking, is it going to happen? Is it? No, it's going to happen. When is the word we use to communicate when we want to know about timing. So if a husband says to his wife, because we took your car into the shop today, I'm going to pick you up after work. If the wife says when she's already indicating, I've heard you and I know you will pick me up. I just want to know what time you will. So God is saying to Solomon, listen to the things he's saying. He doesn't say when I show up and begin to shut to rain down rainbows and sprinkles upon Israel. Or when I show up and I began to command bumper harvests over the land, or when I show up and I begin to heal you and bless you and your children, that's not what he says. He says, right after he says, I've heard your prayer. God then goes into this curious statement when he says, when I close up heaven and it's no longer raining on the land which means that your agriculture is going to suffer, shrivel, and die. When I command locusts to come and devour the land, Israel knew that the sight of locusts is a curse because all the way back in Exodus, they watched locusts appear by God's command and decimate, destroy, and completely completely eat up Egypt's crop as part of the curse judgment and punishment of God for keeping God's people in captivity and refusing to obey Moses when he said, God says, let my people go. So when God says locusts will come, Israel already knows that locusts are a sign of judgment. Locusts are a sign of the curse. Locusts are a sign of God's unhappiness and anger. And then God says, when I send pestilence among you. This is something that Israel is also familiar with. When you see outbreaks of disease among you, they've already received the Levitical laws from Moses, and they already know that the sight of disease outbreaks in the camp is a sign of God's judgment and God's wrath among them. They also know that pestilence is a judgment because they saw pestilence in 
Egypt, that the Egyptians were covered with boils and sores, and yet the Israelites had none. So God begins listing to Solomon right away and tells him when, meaning Solomon, I've heard your prayer and I accept your invitation for this temple to be a house where I will be worshiped by you and the people. And then God just immediately goes on and says, basically, however, it is only a matter of time before I close up heaven and there is no rain. It is only a matter of time before I send locusts to devour the nation. It is only a matter of time before I send pestilence among you. Now you might be asking, why would God be starting off the conversation this way? God is basically telling Solomon, it is only a matter of time before the joyful rejoicing of yesterday, where you all were saying, the Lord is God, the Lord is God and his works are good. His works are wonderful and we, his people will obey and walk in them. The Lord, the Lord is one. God is saying that I know you people. I've been with you forever and I know your ways. Today, a faithful bride, tomorrow, whorish backsliders. And therefore, I am saying to you that as we begin this covenant, I know it is only a matter of time before my wrath and my judgment comes upon you as you once more backslide and fall away from my word. And yet, is this all that God says to Solomon? No. After he speaks of no rain and locusts and sending pestilence, he says that there is a way out. But look at the word that he uses. If my people. If my people. Now, if the word when is speaking of something that is sure to come, and the only question you have about that thing is the timing of when it comes. The word if is not like that. If is a conjunctive that we use to join two ideas together. The word if is not speaking of time. The word if is saying that there is a choice to be made. So a mother will say, if you clean your room today, I'll take you guys to the park. To a teenager, perhaps at the end of high school or maybe in the middle, a father might say, if you consistently get good grades for two semesters in your senior year, we will buy you a car. The word if is saying to the one who is listening, you have a choice to make between one idea here and another idea, and it is your choice to join them or not. If you get good grades, you will be rewarded with a car. That means that if you choose to flunk out, do not moan and complain when you end up with no car because you chose not to join the linking ideas together. So God tells them, it is a sure deal that I am going to end up sending droughts upon Israel, even though this big shiny house has been built as a sign that you guys will be faithful and come to church. I know it's a fact that the locusts are going to come and destroy your crops because you are a perpetually sinful people. I know for a fact that there's going to be outbreaks of diseases among you, but you have a choice. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, 
and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. So God lets Solomon, the leader, let's call him the ruling administration. God lets him know that certain things are surely going to happen. The only thing that is going to determine the first set of things, plague, pestilence, locusts, drought, is when you guys start sinning. It might be during your lifetime, Solomon. It might be during the lifetime of your son coming after you, Rehoboam. It might be a few generations down the line, but I, God, know for a fact that it's going to happen. However, because this part is already settled due to your sinful nature, the part that you can control is when it happens, if you humble yourselves, if you pray, if you seek my face, and if you turn from your wicked ways, you will be able to mitigate and remove the things that are happening. So let us look then, if my people, so God is saying here that I do have a people. In this modern world, we know and understand that not everybody is a child of God. This is people's choice because they choose to believe that there is no God. Perhaps some people have not had the Bible preached to them in a way that they can understand and comprehend. And yet God says that the sound of his name will go throughout the earth. So that means that God says that he will make sure that the gospel is preached to every creature so that no person can die and stand before God and say, well, God, to tell you the truth, I've got a way out because I never heard the scriptures. I never actually had an opportunity to gaze upon the stars or the sun. For God says in Romans chapter one, that everything that is necessary to know him as God has already been revealed through the creation. Meaning that if nobody manages to penetrate that last surviving village out there in some jungle that we do not know about, God maintains that by the creation, it is possible for man, perhaps watching a storm or watching a ladybug to come to an inner realization that this world was made by creative design and did not happen by mistake. God says that if he has a people, so that means automatically we are looking at a crop of people who are separate from all the people. If this is all the people, God is saying that all the people are not my people. I have a people. But are the people of God, those who claim God today, living as God's people? Is everyone who writes Christianity down on the survey a real Christian? Does everybody actually believe that all the words in this book are true words? We have Christians today who are supporting ideas and ways that come from the world and think that it is possible for them to claim that God is their father while they support ideas and ideals that come from Satan, who, as we have been covering on this channel, is another father who has another set of people who he calls my people. So Satan is all also existing, real, actively has a family, and he calls those people 
my people. So if Satan has a people and they follow certain ideologies, rules, beliefs, and you can tell them by their actions, is it possible for someone to agree with ideas in Satan's camp and then claim that they are inside God's camp? Is it possible to camp in Satan's camp and then claim that you are linking yourself to the first part of the requirement of verse 14? If my people, I put to you that it is not. Jesus said to the Pharisees in a moment of rare anger, for he was often frustrated by them, but he always had the perfect answers for them, especially since he could read the intents of their heart. He said to them, you are of your father, the devil. And this is why you do not understand these very simple words that I am speaking. Jesus was basically also in a sense, letting these people know that anyone who basically belongs to me as the good shepherd, will hear my voice and understand me. But your hearts, even though you are the so-called religious and ecumenical, which means church community of the day, even though you're the leaders and you're the fathers of the church, your hearts are filled with different doctrines. Your hearts are actually gatekeepers of Satan's mandates and Satan's agenda and Satan's ways and Satan's ideas. And this is why when I come speaking God's mandates, God's ways and God's ideas, you can't understand me because we are speaking completely at odds. We do not share the same understanding. And so this is the first part of the verse. As a nation and as a people, as you examine the environment around you, I always say this, go around your city and listen to what people say when you're buying your coffee or when you're standing in line to renew your driver's license. When you take your car into the shop, look at what's on the TV in your country and look at the prevailing ideas that people have at the big questions of today. What is life? Who can take away life? Who can create life? What is a man? What is a woman? For America, America's in the process of putting people in power who cannot define in a simple sentence what a man is and what a woman is. The truth of the matter is that they do know what a man is and what a woman is, but the prevailing agenda, which is not God's agenda, prevents them from using their lips to answer a simple question because answering the question clearly might cost them the position of power that they're seeking. And so, at least for America, it is very clear for Americans, if we're honest, to know if we are a nation of his people or not. That's the first part. The second part is this. If we are identifying for God a people, then that means that there should be certain characteristics that should make it easy to point out God's people. One of them that God says is, my people will humble themselves. My people will be able to receive correction. My people will be able to exercise discipline. My people will not be a prideful people. Should my people fall into error and then begin to hear a voice saying, come away from falsehood, stop loving lies, stop perpetrating lies, Stop being liars yourself. Lower yourself in your own esteem. Don't be haughty and don't hold ideas in your heart that 
perhaps you're the number one nation and everybody else should bow and you get to have everything and then you also get to have what anybody else has. So humbleness on a national scale means the ability to work well with others on a national scale. It means the ability to be able to be partisan in the international arena and not have people perhaps have the idea that you're a bully, that you are a warmonger, that you are someone who cannot keep your word and other things like that. The next step is that God says, my people will pray. Many people who are in the Lord's camp have no idea what prayer is. They think that perhaps prayer is just a time to sit in front of the Lord and wait for visible, tangible signs. They think that prayer is just a hurried list of giving God what you need and then saying, don't forget to do it soon because the landlord comes next Thursday. But prayer is a time where the Christian is invited, first of all, to worship God, to exalt his name, to extend towards God all the love all the heartfelt worship, all the true burning passionate desire that we are told real believers have for Jesus. So we're not told love your pastor more than Jesus, love being in the choir more than Jesus, love your position in the church more than Jesus. Jesus Christ is everything and prayer is the lifeblood of relationship with him. So if a Christian doesn't even have a prayer life, that's a good sign to that Christian that perhaps you are failing under the listing of my people. Likewise, escalated to a national level, if you look around and you can see that you don't live in a praying nation, it's going to be pretty hard for you to convince yourself that your nation falls under my people, as verse 14 expects. The next thing is seek my face, which is pretty much an extension of prayer, but it's a little deeper because seeking his face speaks of two things. The first thing it speaks of is intimacy. So seeking God's face means that after you go to church, after you go to Bible study, after you get off that online Zoom prayer thing, it doesn't stop there. You're going deeper. It means that you're setting aside time to deepen your relationship with God apart from anything else. It means that you're not depending on Pastor Bob and Sister Hendricks to be the only source of truth that you have in your life. It also means that you're not expecting YouTube to replace a personal set aside time of trying to get as much of God as you can every day. It means that if you know your day starts at 6 a.m., you know that there's a responsibility on you to wake up earlier, to put time aside with God. Many people, for instance, if they have early jobs, think that the time they spend driving to work and listening to a Bible tape, or the time they spend on the train squashed between strangers listening to the audio Bible is spending time with God. That's not seeking God's face. That's just your own building up of your Christianity. Spending time and seeking God's face is a personalized deep dive into God's word and waiting upon him and also using whatever online tools you can to deepen your understanding of who you follow. There's a scripture in the Bible where it says, Moses knew God's ways, but Israel knew his acts. 
This is basically the picture of intimacy. It means that Moses was so close to God that Moses knew the heart of God almost the way a man knows his wife. But Israel was further from God, and so the only way that they understood what was really going through God's mind is if they saw manna falling, then they knew God was being faithful, or if they saw the pillar of fire go behind them to protect them from Pharaoh, then they knew, oh, God is being our protector and God is being our savior. Or if they saw people dropping dead in the camp after the golden calf incident, then they knew, oh, God is angry. So in other words, a person who has not sought God's face and has no intimacy always needs to see something happening. These are fleshly pushed back Christians who do not have an intimate relationship with God. If they don't see anything happening, then for them, God is not working. For them, God is not there. These are the people who are constantly wondering as they pray, is God even hearing me? But a person who is intimate with God knows that the scripture says that God is always listening to prayer. The scripture says that before even they speak, I hear and I know what they have need of before they ask. So someone who is someone that seeks God's face is no longer dealing with those elementary questions of, I pray, but I don't feel he's listening. You know he's listening and you simply get on with the business of prayer. The second part of seeking his face is directly speaking of times of crisis. So all through the Old Testament, you see that sometimes the guards would sound the shofar and simply say, we're in trouble. The Amalekites are coming. These people are coming. The Philistines are marching upon us. And in that time of crisis, the people quickly assembled. Sometimes the need was so urgent that they called an immediate fast. They would call a fast right on the spot, which is why I always say to people that a fast is not this thing you have to plan and have little pings on your calendar. As a Christian, you need to learn how to be flexible and able to move left, right, back, or forward, depending on the need. Crisis is not going to announce itself. Nobody sends an email to us before a car hits our child the next day when our child is crossing the intersection from school and has the right of way and someone just comes and hits the child and through no fault of you or the child, your child is now in ICU fighting for their life. You don't get a reminder on your phone about that the day before it happens. You don't get a reminder about cancer. You don't get get a reminder about an affair that's going on in your family. Life happens. And as Christians, we need to live in a way that we have what is necessary inside to cope with it. So in seeking God's face, this is talking about a person. And when we escalate it to a national level, a nation that is living ready to find God in a moment of crisis. To find God in a 9-11. To find God in an Oklahoma bombing. To find God when terrible things happen all of a sudden without warning. 
If you are a nation that perhaps can be hit with a pestilence and the people immediately go into sackcloth and mourning, if you live in a nation that will receive prophecies of God's anger and judgment and go into times of seeking God national repentance as Nineveh did, then you are a nation wherever you may be in the world watching this that qualifies under my people called by my name in this verse 14. And then he says, turn from their wicked ways. I'm looking at you, America. I would not even need to say anything. I could sit here quietly for three minutes and look, and you look back at me, and in all of our minds, we would be listing without running out of any sin and without repeating the name of any sin, all the things that the nation does, that God calls wicked ways. There are over 112 videos on this channel, so there's absolutely no need for me to do a deep dive into wicked ways. So these are the conditions. The word if is a condition. Humble yourself, pray, seek my face, Turn from wicked ways, which basically means repentance. Repentance is when you renounce the former conduct of breaking God's laws. I have several videos on repentance on this channel, and so I'm not going to go into it. But the modern church has been told that repentance is feeling sorry. Repentance is not feeling sorry. Those of you who have children, Maybe your child does something and you tell your child, this was wrong, this should not have been done. Children are capable of feeling sorry without repenting. And you will know because the minute you turn your back, your child will go and do that same thing again. This is not the action of someone who is sorry. This is just the, of repentance. This is just the action of someone who, when caught, shows remorse. Remorse is not repentance. Remorse is the victimhood feeling that is natural to humanity. When your wife catches you in infidelity, when your husband uncovers three years of Facebook's texts and suggestive pictures between you and that ex-boyfriend, you are honestly going to feel sorry. You're sorry you got caught. You're sorry because you know what's coming next. You're sorry because he has the right to pay you no alimony and he's probably going to win all the property in court. That is why you are sorry. You are sorry because changes are about to come to what you were doing that will make you uncomfortable. That is not repentance. Personal discomfort is not repentance. Personal discomfort focuses on the person. Repentance focuses on God, how we have wronged God, how we have lied to God, how we have sidelined God, put him right by the side like a vase so that we can do what we want to do. Repentance is recognizing evil conduct against the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and being sorry for that, not being sorry for self, being sorry for wronging Jesus, Yah, and the Holy Spirit and seeking renewal by the spirit and the blood of Jesus to break off the cycle or the pattern of that conduct that we're sorry for hurting them for in the first place. So when a nation is not sorry, then that nation is not repentant. 
And if a nation is not repentant, it is not, it is not likely that that nation will seek God's face. It is not likely that that nation will pray. It is not likely that that nation will humble itself. It is likely that that nation will continue in the four things that God says. If you continue in the four things that are under if, then the three things that I said that are under when are definitely going to happen. And so when we look at national repentance, it can simply be defined as this. National repentance is when everybody in a nation or a greater significant portion of a nation recognizes the four things under if and does them so that the three things under when will not happen. If you do not see everyone in a nation or a vastly significant portion of a nation humbling itself, praying, seeking God's face, and turning from its wicked ways, then you do not need anyone to tell you that that nation is not in repentance. That nation is in sin, and that is why there will be no mercy shown to that nation. But the judgments that are already pronounced against that nation in the heavens will surely come against that nation. So applying this test, anyone in Norway, in China, in the United States, in the UK, it doesn't matter where you are, South America, Africa, Australia, if you look around you and you can see either that your country for the large majority falls on the yes side or for the large majority falls on the no side, then you understand that 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, although it is greatly quoted in the Christian community, is not for every country. I'm Celestial, and this is the Master's Voice. I hope that this teaching has been helpful to you. When you read the Bible, read what's written, not what you think, not what you saw on the other prophecy channel, not what they're telling you so that you feel comfortable, but so that you can wake up and understand the times that we are in. God is sifting the nations. God is also sifting every heart. And so when nations are under national judgment and those nations don't wake up and realize that the only way you turn away national judgment is national repentance, then if my people does not apply to that nation. May the Lord Jesus Christ bless you. May your eyes be open so that you can understand the things that God is saying to the churches. And until I see you again, goodbye.